Hello, Vetfolio Voice listeners. We're so glad to have you back for the third installment of our conversation with Dr. Susan Little about parasites in our canine and feline friends, brought to you courtesy of Elanco Animal Health. If you enjoyed the first two episodes, then buckle up because you're in for another great parasite discussion. In this episode, we discuss flea and tick control and the possible reasons why we still deal with outbreaks of fleas and ticks despite the existence of effective preventatives. I'm sure you're all familiar with her by now, but let me remind you of Dr. Little's expertise and then we'll get into our talk. Dr. Susan Little is a Regents Professor and Kroll Ewing Chair in Veterinary Parasitology at the Center for Veterinary Health Sciences at Oklahoma State University. She's recognized internationally as a leader in veterinary parasitology and vector-borne disease. She teaches veterinary parasitology and oversees a research program centered on tick-borne diseases and zoonotic parasites. She's founder and co-director of the National Center for Veterinary Parasitology, a past president of the American Association of Veterinary Parasitologists, and an emeritus member and past president of the Companion Animal Parasite Council, or CAPC. We're so glad to have her with us today. Let's go ahead and get into it. All right, we're back again with Dr. Susan Little, episode number three. We're going to be talking about flea and tick control today. So thanks again for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Cassie. Absolutely. So we're all familiar with fleas. Is there anything new and important that we need to know about flea biology or flea control? I mean, it's 2021, but we're still dealing with bad flea outbreaks. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think there are some new things we're learning. Fleas, of course, have this have had the same biology for uh, millennia, but we keep learning more things about them. And fleas take advantage of the environment they're presented with. And so if anything, I think we've got bigger flea problems now than we used to have, even though we've got better flea products now than we've ever had before. So the fleas do well in a warm, humid environment like a lot of parasites. And so we're going to see those crazy high numbers of fleas. And we're seeing outbreaks, really just unprecedented flea infestations of homes, of um, shelters, of pets because of that ability they have at reproduction, right? That's what fleas are so so good at is reproducing. So when I first saw the data on isoxazolines presented, I leaned over to a colleague and I said, this is the end of fleas, right? Like I cannot believe how amazing the laners, the, the, the laner group is against fleas. But of course, they re- my colleague responded, oh no, because they won't use it, right? So <laughs> it only works if it's used. And sure enough, they're right. We have to still convince people to, to use the systemic flea control products in order to get on top of the fleas. But when they're used, at least for now, today, they, it's, the fleas go away. We can eliminate infestations um, depending on the product, you know, just with routine monthly treatment, with treatment every 12 weeks. It's amazing how effective uh, the isoxazolines are against fleas. Sure. Yeah, I've been really happy with them. Here in the Southeast where, like you said, warm, humid climates, lots yeah. of lots of fleas. Yeah, we joke about 14 months of, of flea life cycle every year in Florida, for sure. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. Oh. So what are some of the sources of these flea infestations? I mean, of course, a free roaming outdoor dog, cat uh, would develop a flea problem, but what about well-kept house dogs, indoor-only cats? 
where do those fleas come from? I mean, we definitely still see fleas in those patients. Right, right. And it is surprising. It's surprising to a lot of owners when you first have the flea conversation with them because you run a flea comb down their pet and you found some flea frass and you see that characteristic hair loss of the tail head or the bare abdomen, or they're just really pruritic and they think, oh, it can't be fleas, but the fleas manage to find a way. And so peridomestic wildlife is a great source of fleas, possums, raccoons, foxes that are right around the home. Those cat fleas will do really well on those species. And then there'll be stages deposited around the home. And so if the dog or the owner is outside, they can certainly bring in a few fleas and set off a infestation on an indoor only cat. Sometimes even the possums come inside or in the crawl space, right? In the areas of the house. And so the fleas can be introduced that way. Feral cats, which are very popular free roaming cat colonies, well cared for. Communities are of two minds about them, but they're common for sure. And so um, the cats that are free roaming in a neighborhood can can serve as a source of the fleas. And they don't really respect property boundaries, fences, barriers. So they'll they'll be in the yard. And then we have a lot of communities where coyote populations are really high and they can serve as a source of, of fleas too. And that's sort of a, a shift in recent decades to bring fleas into communities. It can help or it can reduce the free roaming cat population, but it's still a source of, of fleas. So um, definitely a concern. You mentioned earlier that we're seeing some of the worst outbreaks that we've seen despite having these great flea products. What, how would you recommend we manage these really bad outbreaks or these really allergic pets? Yeah, the flea issues are so much worse when there's flea allergy, right? When you have a, the flea allergic dog. And so the first thing is to get on top of that population. So to make sure that you have highly effective flea control on board. And so that might be an isoxazoline or it might be layering one of the isoxazolines, one of the laners with another, a topical flea control products so that you have, you have both while you're getting that population under control. And then you can back off and just use one flea control product for long-term maintenance. We often layer multiple products for tick control too, when the tick populations are blooming. So when I see a flea allergic dog with a clear, you know, clear evidence of a, of a heavy flea infestation too, sometimes you need more than one to get that population under control. On, on treating. And then the other thing to think about is the flea reproduction that's happening in the environment. We know that that biomass is there. We know that those pupae are going to continue to, um, adult fleas are going to continue to emerge from the pupae. And so we do still have to worry about the flea reproduction. I sometimes hear uh, veterinarians say dead fleas don't breed, which is absolutely true. I cannot argue with that statement at all, but none of the products over time have been hundred percent. And so even though the systemics, the data looks amazing, there's a lot of flea diversity out there, a lot of genetic diversity that we're currently selecting for fleas that maybe could break through. And so having some sort of control on flea reproduction can make a big difference. And then once the flea allergies under control, the hair's grown back, everything's good. Just making sure that the owners know they need to use that baseline flea control product, whatever that is in your practice, to keep the, the fleas at bay. That it's not like we treat this, it goes away, and then we forget about it, right? And so you sometimes hear clients say, I've had uh, members of my extended family say, oh, I don't need to do flea control anymore. The flea population you know, went away. I don't have that problem anymore. And I'm like, Yes, you do. And they'll say, well, I haven't seen a flea in two years. Why would I keep using flea control? And I'm like, the reason you haven't seen a flea in two years is because you've been using flea control. So 
making sure that the owners understand this is a lifelong issue. This flea allergy will recur if the populations come back. Sometimes I feel like it has to recur a time or two before they're like, oh, it really does come back. And and I know, I think we're guilty of that um, ourselves too. We deal with a lot of red meat allergy from Lone Star Tick exposure, which is a new issue. And um, people will tell me they know they have red meat allergy, but they keep trying. Like, well, maybe it's gone now. So I'll just try. And they're, you know, risking anaphylactic shock, but it's worth it. So man for a good steak. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You talked about the biodiversity of fleas and selecting for potential resistance and things like that. We do hear a lot about resistance in some areas. Some of the older products, they just don't seem to work as well as they used to. How can we know in practice if we're looking at resistance or if our plan has failed for some other reason? Yeah, that's really tough because resistance and treatment failure look the same. They're both I prescribed the product or recommended the product and the flea problem is still there. And so it doesn't really present clinically any different. So you wouldn't have a way to tell it apart. In order to do resistance assays, we really have to bring the fleas into the lab, hatch out, you know, the, the grow the eggs to pupae, to adults and do the tests. And that's just more involved. It takes a lot more effort to do that. So we often don't have, we almost always don't have confirmation of resistance. The other thing that's challenging is that Sometimes a veterinarian will recommend a flea control product. And because there's so many pupae in the environment and there's so many adult fleas still coming, right? So we haven't exhausted that that resource, that that bioresource in the carpet and in the upholstery, that it doesn't go away. So they, they use that product once, one month, two months, it doesn't go away. So then they switch to another product and then it does go away in the third month or the fourth month. But it, that may have also happened if you'd stuck with the first product. So it's really tricky to to sort that out. Having said that, the way we get resistance is by exposing a population of parasites to a drug over a long period of time. But there's a little bit more nuance to it than that. If we expose the parasites to a lower than ideal level of drug or give it intermittently, kind of erratically, then you're more likely to select for resistance because you've given the parasites a chance to bounce back from that treatment. And if we think about how many owners treat their pets for fleas, you know, I've had owners tell me they wait till the scabs appear on the cat's neck because then they know that's it's time to, to treat for fleas again because that's the evidence of flea allergy. Or they wait to see the tailhead alopecia or the pink belly on the dog and then they know it's time to treat for fleas in their flea allergic pet. And I'm thinking, no, no, that means we're already too late. But if you do that, if you try and stretch, if you take a four-week product and try and use it as a six-week or an eight-week product, or try not to use it you know, in the fall because you've decided by the calendar there's no more fleas, when actually we see really heavy flea populations in the fall in many places, then that's how we're going to select for resistance over time. And so we know we've used a lot of the older flea control products on a lot of flea populations. And so resistance is certainly a, a possibility. So I think that's another reason that the isoxazolines were so embraced because it was new chemistry and a new opportunity for us as veterinarians to get on top of the flea problems. Sure. And like you said, these isoxazolines, the, the laners, they're fantastic flea control. I mean, they, I've been really happy with what I've seen in practice, but sometimes I do get pushback from owners. They're concerned about safety. You know, they've read about seizure risks and things like that with these medications. What are your thoughts in terms of the risk and the safety of these products when we're using them? Yeah, so the seizure risk is real. It's a class-wide phenomenon, and it's something we do need to be concerned about and aware of. And so if you have a dog with a history of seizures, then this is not the 
the drug for you, for, for your dog. So luckily there's still other options out there that are really good. Um, if you do, if your practice is used to using systemics, and so your technicians are used to having the conversation about isoxazolines, and you have a few clients that because of safety concerns, seizure risk, are instead using a topical or a different product, it might be worth making sure everybody's um, on board with understanding how those products are different. So one thing we do with topicals, and by that I mean imidacloprid or fipronil or dinotepuran, something that's truly on the surface of the dog that's not absorbed systemically. If you're using that, then bathing the dog or a lot of water exposure, even for the water-resistant topicals, can strip that product off. And so it's important to reduce bathing, which seems counterintuitive to a person struggling with fleas, right? But we've actually seen efficacy of some of the topicals dramatically enhanced to the point of now effective once the owners stop the frequent bathing. So, so working through that, and that can be, I think, even more challenging now when so many of the younger technicians, you know, the isoxazolines are all they've known. So they're just not as, as familiar with that. In terms of seizure risk, though, you're absolutely right that um, that sort of takes the, the laners off the table. And then asking that question just to make sure that it's not something that the owner's seen and just not aware of. Um, but I feel very comfortable using them. I use them in my own, my own pets and I recommend them for others. And so um, it's a concern, but it's not enough of a concern to my mind to not use them at all. And then using them in young animals. So some of the isoxazolines when first approved, it was for six months or older, maybe based on how it was dosed, maybe based on safety concerns or just data, available data. But there are now products that originally were six months and older that you can now get puppy versions of. So they're used monthly when the puppies are younger, and then they go to longer term when the puppies are older. So that's an option. And certainly they're approved for use in cats too. So that's really nice that we have uh, multiple isoxazolines available for cats. It's great. Yes. You need good options in cats. They can be toughies to get under control. Yeah, for sure. And so then there's ticks and we're going to talk a little bit more about ticks in another podcast, but if you could just share three key points about ticks with owners, what would they be? Yeah, I think I would try and stress to owners that ticks are a, a constant threat. And that's hard to get across because owners don't see them, you know, 365 days of the year. There's not ticks out there. We think of ticks as a spring summer problem, which is certainly true, but they're also a fall winter problem. Owners often aren't aware their dog has a tick. They're surprised when the screen for a tick-borne infection turns up positive and they say the most common thing we hear is I never saw a tick. But clearly the tick saw your dog, right? Because that's the only way we're going to get those antibodies on those screening tests. So just that constant threat. And then with that is the insidious threat, the fact that we don't know they're there, that we can't find them. They're very stealthy. And so especially on you know longer haired dogs, they'll they'll get down below the, the hair coat. The larvae and the nymphs are so tiny, you can't hardly see them at all. The adult females get larger as they feed, but the males aren't that large either, and yet can still transmit infections. And so that underhanded way that they, that they approach our pets, that we don't know they're there, they're there most of the year, there's ticks out, and that the problem is increasing. So there's more ticks now than there was 10 years ago, than there was 20 years ago. We're seeing that growing threat. And we can see that in the data in tick-borne diseases in people. We can see it in the tick-borne diseases in dog data. And we just know it from the number of ticks that are being submitted. And so all that together means that we have to have dogs on tick control. 
it means that we know that the diseases they transmit, you know, aren't just a inconvenience, they're actually potentially fatal infections. So these are really serious medical concerns. And that the, the last piece is that cats get them too. So if I had to choose three, it would be your pets need to be on tick control. They transmit really serious, potentially fatal infections and cats get ticks too. Absolutely. Are we seeing resistance in tick control products the same way that we're seeing it in some of the flea control products? For the most part, we're not seeing resistance to tick control products. And one reason we think that we don't see it that much is that ticks are actually living out in nature, right? They're in the woods, they're in the grassy meadows, they're in the fields, they're feeding on wildlife. And then they come to dogs and cats and to us when we go out into those natural areas. So if you think about those ticks that are out in nature, that's the source of refugia because those ticks have not been exposed to tick control products. So when we treat pets for ticks, we're not treating all the ticks in the world. The way when we treat pets for fleas, we are kind of treating all the fleas in their world because it's all the fleas in the home. So the one exception to that life cycle pattern of ticks being in nature and not in our home is brown dog ticks, ripocephalus, because those do come into the home. They're sort of the tick that wants to be a flea. And so the they would be exposed to the drug and we would expect to select for resistance. And sure enough, we have seen some evidence of resistance in some populations of brown dog ticks to the older tick control products. We haven't seen that yet with the isoxazolines, but we have seen that with some of the older tick control products. Where are all these ticks coming from? I mean, you said we're seeing more ticks now than ever, which is a little scary. So where are they coming from? Why is the tick problem getting worse? Yeah, so one major reason for the increase is the recovery, the dramatic success of wildlife populations. And so we have more white-tailed deer in North America than ever before. And they're a wonderful reservoir for ticks. For the adult stages of Ixodes, for all stages of Lone Star ticks, we have more wild turkey, which really support heavy Lone Star tick populations for the immature stages to feed. We have dermacenter ticks, which are feeding on cattle, but also on deer. And so as we get more healthy wildlife populations, more natural habitat, we've had a lot of reforestation in the Eastern US, which many of us welcome because we like that natural environment. But as you build a more natural, healthy, wooded environment with heavy wildlife populations, you're going to have more tick problems. So there's no ticks in parking lots. There's no ticks in, you know, massive areas of concrete, but most of us don't want to live in parking lots or paved areas, right? So if you have that natural area, then you're going to have more ticks. And then there has been development in areas where historically there weren't people. So as exurban development moves further out from urban centers, you get movement into agricultural areas sometimes or natural areas. So people sort of move in with the ticks and then the, they come to the pets and to the people and we see more tick-borne infections. Absolutely. I have deer and wild turkey in my backyard regularly and also a lot of ticks. We use a lot of, a lot of laners and a lot yeah. of spray. Yeah. And then the other thing that's happening is, is climate change, increased temperature, increased humidity. The ticks have gone up in latitudes. They've moved, Ixodes deer ticks has moved into Canada. Lyme disease is the new normal, or it's been there now for over a decade, up in altitude. So we see it more at higher elevations in Appalachia. We saw it move down the down through Southern Appalachia into Kentucky and Tennessee. And so that those changes in climate together with changes in habitat, wildlife populations, movement of dogs, introduction of new ticks is leading to an increased tick problem. 
Well, Dr. Little, thank you again. Once again, it's been a pleasure having you. Any final thoughts you want to share? Well, thanks for having me on the podcast again. And and I guess my final thoughts on flea and tick control would just be the appreciation I have for veterinarians and technicians for how diligent they are in doing those ectoparasite exams and finding the fleas and ticks. We've been running a national survey of ticks on dogs and cats in the U.S. And veterinarians and technicians from all over the country have been mailing us ticks for identification. And we're able to see through that the tick problem is getting worse, for sure. We're seeing new ticks introduced. So we have the the longhorn tick, Haemophysalis longicornis, is now established in 14 states in the eastern U.S. So the tick problem is getting worse for sure, but fortunately veterinarians are there to meet that challenge. And we've got great tick control products that we can protect, use to protect our patients. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you again, Dr. Little, for joining us. And thank you to Elanco Animal Health for sponsoring this event. If you'd like to find more episodes like this, click on the education tab on Vetfolio's webpage. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. Mm-hmm.